Blog Talk Radio. Extremely well known for 
her writing. She is an author. She is a celebrated spiritual teacher. She has been loved and acclaimed really across the world. She has been a regular guest on the Oprah show and many other nationally televised shows. Not yet on A Better World television, but that I'm sure will be in the making. And she has now stepped up to a very powerful position of running, positioning herself to run for Congress, where, as I was saying before, we so need people who are people of conscience, of a loving heart, and a clear mind. Her book on the healing the soul of America really resounded through many people when it was first published and since because it touched upon the aspects of our heritage as Americans and our heritage as human beings, seeking justice, seeking love, understanding of each other, and building a society, a community and a society based on these very humanitarian values. So it's really with great pleasure and honor that I uh, invite Marianne on to join us now, and we'll be learning of her platform and what it is that inspired her to step up to this plate. Marianne, are you there? Yes, I am. So glad to have you back on A Better World. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely, absolutely. So from the last time we had you on our airwaves, Marianne, last year, after one book on uh, divine contemplation and compensation uh, came out, boy, what a radical change in your life to be stepping up to this possible candidacy. What accounts for this <laughs> radical, wonderful uh, inspiration? Well, thank you so much for calling it an inspiration and calling it wonderful. I have to tell you, yeah. I don't feel that it is a radical change. I feel that it's the same conversation I've been in in my career for 30 years, expanded yeah. to include all of us together. You know, the principles that heal one person's life are the same principles that heal a nation. All that a nation is is a, is a collection of individuals. And whatever insight, wisdom, and skill set that I have been able to gain over 30 years of working very up close and personal with people whose lives are often in trouble, I think that that same kind of work that turns a crisis into an opportunity in an individual's life is what would turn crisis into an opportunity in a nation's life. And I look forward to being able to have the conversation about transformation, about renewal, about healing, about new beginnings, um, as it relates to uh, to an entire nation. I think we need that conversation. And as we know individually, Mitchell, if you don't do that deeper work and deeper inquiry, your life does not change. And I think this country will not change either if all we do is continue to address the symptoms of our problems but not the real disease, and we continue to address the effects but not the cause. So I, I am enjoying having the opportunity to talk about the same things I've been talking about for 30 years, but as they apply to a nation. And I think people are recognizing that that's the way we're going to get results and real change and real healing in this country. 
Indeed. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Marianne. What we deal with is a bunch of services in Congress by and large, and then the media picks up and reflects that, and there's very little real depth, understanding of self, any sense of what healing is about as it applies to the body politic. For most people, healing is a question of going to a doctor and symptom relief, and I feel that you're bringing a whole nother level to the conversation. In fact, that's really one of my questions. Dealing with a world of really surfaces, of superficiality in the body politic as it exists today, with <laughs> overemphasis on money, on who you know, on the whole nepotism matter, how do you intend to bring the conversation to a greater sense of weight and depth? Well, politics should be a container for our deepest conversation, not our most shallow conversation. Agreed. And I think people long for that, and that's what I've seen on this campaign, especially mm -hmm. running as an independent, where nobody knows who else in the room is a Democrat, nobody knows who else in the room is a Republican, nobody knows who's an independent, because we don't need those separating walls. We don't need to come in, I'm this, you're that, we don't agree. <clears throat> it's time for Americans, you know, JFK said, let us seek not the Democratic answer or the Republican answer, but the right answer. And yes, so yes. this campaign is already a container. You know, we, we want to recognize that, as Gandhi said, the end is, is um, inherent in the, the – the end is inherent in the In the, the beginning. So the campaign yeah. itself is a different kind of conversation where we are having a deeper dialogue. And I'm, I'm, when you say, how do I intend to do it, we're doing it. That's what this campaign is. We're talking about it is already, in other words, it's already in process. What it is absolutely. you intend is happening it's, now. Right, because it's a deeper conversation. It is a yeah. conversation that's not the stale political status quo, ho-hum, same old, same old, politics is a horse race, politics is a spectator sport, Stepford citizens, we're just watching, we're disengaged, we're not talking about the things that really matter, we're not talking about the deeper issues, we're only talking about the surface and pretending that we're governing a country. So, I, you know, Martin Luther King said there was a, an external and an internal goal of the civil rights movement. <clears throat> he said the externalization of the movement, the externalized political goal, was the desegregation of the American South, but that the ultimate goal was the establishment of the beloved community. Well, the mm. externalized political goal that I think we need to be concerning ourselves with in the absence of which we cannot have a deeper healing of our democracy is the fact that we have created over the last few decades a legalized system of bribery and corruption. Moneyed interests wield a, an influence on our political functioning that is so disproportionate to the influence that is wielded by the average citizen. And as a consequence, we have this very, very toxic, very toxic brew of shrinking civil liberties, expanding corporate influence, and domestic surveillance. This is putting our democracy into a tailspin. It's putting our democracy into what could be a death spiral. And I believe those of us who seek to live our lives on the ground of a real commitment to something higher cannot be sitting out this process because mm -hmm. there are few things in life higher and more transcendent and more important than being proper stewards of this extraordinary vortex of possibility, which is American democracy. And that, to me, is a conversation that speaks to our highest aspirations and our highest hopes and our highest yearnings, that this country Indeed. be the possibility, the space of possibility for others, that it has been for us, that it has been for our ancestors, 
And, you know, the abolitionists saw slavery and they knew that <clears throat> they needed to end it. And women, yeah. uh, women and the women's suffragette movement saw the suppression of women's right to vote and they knew that they had to fix that. And civil rights movement that were people who saw that this country, that there were Jim Crow laws and segregation in the American South, and they knew it was time to fix that. And they did what needed to be done. I think we need a constitutional amendment to outlaw the undue influence of money. It took an, an amendment to abolish slavery. It took an amendment to give women the right to vote. I think we're going to need a constitutional amendment to outlaw the undue influence of money in our politics. I don't think that anything less than that will put this country back on track We'll stop making a mockery of the Gettysburg Address. We, we're not a, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people right now. We're a government of a few of the people, and by a few of the people, and for a few of the people. And I hope that our generation will not be the first generation of Americans to wimp out on the challenge, wimp out on the job that needed to be done to make this country all that it can be. Well, that's very beautifully put, Marianne, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, a mutual uh, colleague and friend of ours, Sam Daly-Harris, wrote a book that I find to be very galvanizing around this subject for the American people, the citizenry, called Reclaiming Your Democracy. And it's essentially an inspirational book, as you know, and uh, a guidebook as to how to relate to the body politic in a very personal way and to get motivated and redeem this notion of the citizen legislator where we are directly involved, I, I've been calling it and many have, participatory democracy. And uh, I see that that's the direction you have really set out on and really has been lost now for some time as there has been this growing sense of corporatocracy you know with such uh, movements as ALEC and others that are seeking to dominate our body politic on all levels not only national but state and local levels so uh, speaking the truth and that's very much what I hear you doing I hear you speaking from a deep authentic place that I think is rousing people, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about the feedback you're getting as you're uh, out in California speaking with groups, that you're going beyond, as an independent, which I think is great, uh, going beyond the superficial categories and reaching the heart of people. What, what kind of feedback are you getting from this? It's beautiful. I feel heard. I feel that there is a real listening for the things that we are talking about here. Mm -hmm. um, the question is not for me whether or not the listening and the conversation uh, exists. The, listening, the, the question for me is whether I will be able to create a campaign that can actually harness all of this energy and turn it into an electoral victory um, yes. on June 3rd, which is the primary. Now, you know, I'm running as an independent. I'm running a grassroots campaign. <clears throat> I'm not taking PAC money. I'm not taking lobbyist money. So mm -hmm. uh, the issue is, will enough people join me in actually stepping up to the plate, as I'm trying to do myself? In yes. a grassroots campaign, particularly an independent campaign, this is not just a matter of what I can do. You know, it's like you and I were talking about before. We're, we're getting away from the allopathic paradigm 
of, yes. of politics, and we're moving into exactly. an integrative model. We need holistic politics, just like we That's we right. turn to holistic medicine. That it can't just That's be left right. in the hands, you know. So it can't just be, I hope Marianne wins. You know, even people who <clears throat> support the ideas of this campaign, if all they stay with is I hope Marianne wins, then I probably won't yes. win. But if everybody who is saying I hope Marianne wins, then turns that into a $5 donation, putting it on their Facebook page, putting it on their Twitter page, talking to their yeah. friends, coming to the events, then we're going to have, have that. And, I, and I, I hope that I win, because if I win, this will really help create a possibility, a real space of possibility, not just for myself or for this district, but I think that's for people all over the country who oh, will look yes. at that and go, wow, look what was possible out in District 33, uh, 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 an independent candidate, whose primary <clears throat> goal was to point out that there is an issue underlying all the other issues, a cancer underlying all the other cancers, and that yes. is the undue influence of money on our politics. You know, if we can have an independent candidate whose campaign on an external basis consists of that message, then we will really have done something that's a service to the country. And, and I hope that people, first of all, I'm grateful for anybody who gives me a listen, but if those yes. who actually then feel in their hearts that they support it. If they yeah. if they see this as the collaborative venture that it is and actually work to help spread the word, to help support the campaign, I, I know that we can do something beautiful here. I know it. Oh, boy, I really think you're right. And, you know, if you look at A Better World's website, abetterworld.tv, you are all over it and our Facebook page at Better World oh, Media and Mitchell you. J. Rabin. And we say, Marianne is running for Congress. Let's get spirit into action. Let's turn Thank this so into much. a win. And in fact, I just, if I may say, I feel that just your stepping up to the plate is step one, no pun intended, of a win, because it means a woman of your level and integrity has been willing to step up to one of the most difficult, most challenging places in our society, which has become the political process and be willing to say yes to it. I think that is powerful in itself, and I recognize it's only step one, but it's a good one. And you really do need to be acknowledged for that, Marianne. And step two is, beautifully as you put it, that people need to, as we say, put their money where their mouth is and not just right. hope. <clears throat> hope is beautiful. I'm, I'm big on hope. But hope alone, as you're saying, People in action, on the ground, supporting you verbally, monetarily, spiritually, if you will, with what you're doing and what you're up to. And it's fractal, as we know. What's happening in the 33rd District of California is a microcosm of what can be reverberating across our country. And uh, because of what you have accomplished for decades of your, of your devoted work, <clears throat> to people with AIDS, to the underclass, so to speak, the underdog, you have really made a name for yourself in standing up for people. And uh, I think that's going to become increasingly recognized. What do you think? Well, I, you know, from your mouth to God's ears, as my mother would yes. say, I think, that, <laughs> I think that what you were saying is so very, very important because – the idea of people stepping up, and, you know, it doesn't have to be an overreach either. Just sometimes people think, 
well, what you know, what difference would my putting it on my Facebook page, you know, page yes. make, or what difference sure. would could my Twitter make? Uh, what difference yes. could my calling a friend make? What difference could my you know relatively small donation make? But that's what a sure. people's movement is about, and that's what we need. This is much bigger than just one person uh, running for Congress. One person running for Congress, one person winning, is not going to change this this country we need a people's movement and we need a lot of people running from a new worldview we need a lot of people saying i'm not going to do the same old same old stale political status quo conversation where it's all about the machinery and it's all about the pack money and it's all about the lobbyist money and it's all about the playing along and all of that kind of stuff so Mm -hmm. you know the 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 more that we can really arouse in people a sense that our country matters, that this is no joke, that the culture of disengagement that so many of us have fallen into uh, over the last few decades is is a withhold of our gifts. You know, some people say, yes. well, you know, I don't really want to do politics. You know, I don't think that's where anything changes. Well, you know, I don't see it as the salvation of the world, but I see it as potentially so destructive if we're not careful that it can Indeed. stop the larger evolution, you know, of um of, of the species. Yeah, literally. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the 11th is, hour now. It's not midnight, but it is. It is, that's right. It is the 11th, is hour. The 11th hour. And what you're saying is that it, the decisions made in Washington, which affect the corporations' business and the way they go about business, is of utter importance because we are facing, as we both know and our listening audience, climate change, global warming and a carbon footprint that is absolutely beyond. I mean, just listen to Bill McKibben and 350.org for one of many voices who have, I mean, these are people who have been willing to go down to Washington, D.C. and be arrested for standing up for their beliefs and to make a nuisance of themselves so that people will listen. This is threatening our earth and our species. That's how serious the decisions in Washington are to the very existence of our species, and not just ours. A lot of non-human species are going up in smoke. Another a book that just came out, Marianne, which you're probably aware of, uh, by Elizabeth Colbert, a writer for the New York Times and New Yorker, called The Sixth Extinction. And this just outlines just literally how serious, how... 11th hour it is. So, you know, not to be overly dramatic, but to make a point, to have somebody of your heart and your consciousness stepping up to the plate that could be a leader slash facilitator of a people's movement in Washington could actually make a very big difference if people want to get up and play. Well, I think people think. I think we need some courage right now. This is not the time to be numb. It's not the time to be quiet. It's not the time to be disengaged. <clears throat> and there's nothing negative about yelling fire if in, ha- if, if in fact the house is burning down. So That's I think right. what so many of us want, particularly those who come at these things from a spiritual perspective, people want to feel that they can stay true to their own <clears throat> inner values and still take part in the larger political conversation and that's what we're all together trying to create with this campaign and i think it's something that's been accumulating i think a lot of people have been talking about 
the creation of a new field, a political possibility. And, you know, just like an individual has to face their own character defects, an individual has to face their own shadows, because otherwise you don't turn crisis into opportunity. I think America has a lot of shadows that we need to face. It doesn't mean we're bad, but it means we're wounded, just like with an individual. We have the second highest child poverty rate of all advanced nations. We're second only to Romania. One in five American Mm. children are food insecure. One in five American children live in poverty. Can you believe the second only to Romania? We also Mm. have the highest mass incarceration rate in the world. 2.4 million people in the United States are in prison. And for an African-American man living in uh, the United States today, he has a one in three lifetime probability of incarceration. We have 1%, you know, controlling almost 40% of the of the wealth in our nation, 60% of our people living on 2.3% of the wealth. This isn't, you know, we can talk about these things being immoral and unethical and undemocratic, but I'll tell you something, more than anything else, they are unsustainable. And right. I think most Americans realize this. And, and, and Americans are good people. America, I don't think the average American realizes we have the second highest child poverty rate. No. I, I, I don't no. think that the average American realizes uh, the mass incarceration rate and so forth. So. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I agree with you. I'm so glad that you're bringing these matters up because these are of such importance. And I'd like to come back to those, but I want to just look at the subject of power distribution between the two parties first and that you have chosen to be independent, which is something I've been favoring for decades and just was so much behind Rocky Anderson for president, who is running third party. And so I appreciate that. And John Hagelin, I mean, if this is any uh, solace, um, maybe you know Harold uh, Bloomfield, who is a psychiatrist from the uh, originally from Brooklyn, nice Jewish guy, went to Yale, and he, in the Natural Law Party, what was it, in 1996, I believe, ran for governor, first time, no background in politics whatsoever. You actually have more, and got 14% of the vote in California. Wow. So there is a place, Marianne, for independence. I think it's a – in fact, oh the God, numbers show it's, it's not, a yeah, growing absolutely. place. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. You Speak know, to the, that, if you would, a little bit. I think it's important. Then we can circle back to the, the heartfelt sadness and shadow of our country, which yeah. this is part of, by the way. Yeah. Well, 60% of the American people say that they're open to independent candidates at this point. You know, there's nothing in our Constitution, nothing in any of our founding documents – about um, a political parties, nothing. And George Washington actually warned us against them in his farewell address. <clears throat> Abolition didn't come from a major party. Women's suffrage didn't come from a major party. Right. Uh, civil rights movement didn't come from a major party. These were people's movements. And so it's really an aberration in American history that we're living in a time where when we think of making real moves, the only thing that even comes up is where would it fit into the Democrats or the Republicans. And mm-hmm. so I think we need less machinery separating us from the ideal of we the people. I mean, the founders did not put the governance of this nation into the hands of a political party. The founders put the governance of this nation into the hands of the people. And with every every layer, whether it's corporations or unions or 
or um, or parties, political parties, are all these layers that are making the people ourselves further and further away from the real center of political gravity. And that's what we are meant to be, we, ourselves, uh, not working through this or working through that. I mean, there are places for all those things. Of course, there are places. Uh, for, sure. There's a place for political parties. Obviously, I'm pro-union. And, there's, and there are places for corporations. But there's not a place for anything that seems to replace, that seems to replace that sort of naked, raw, um, unabashed, unfiltered uh, stream between what people think and people feel and what turns into public policy in our country. That's not just an ideal. That's the whole point of America. That's what democracy is. That is our spine, that is our heart, and that is our mind. And when we see things swerving so radically off that, so that we are now, like for all intents and purposes, we've recreated an aristocracy. Some people call it a corporatocracy, a plutocracy, an oligarchy. It doesn't matter. The point is the archetype, and that is an aristocracy. When there's a certain group of people, and they basically take what they want first, and then everybody else can fight over the rest so that you have oil companies dominating our climate change policy. You have health and pharmaceutical companies, uh, health insurance and pharmaceuticals dominating our health care policies. You have chemical companies and big agriculture dominating our food policies, and on and on and on. That's why getting the money out of politics is the underlying issue. So I think Americans are waking up to all of this. We repudiated aristocracy in 1776, and it's time for us to repudiate it again. (laughs) Right, don't you think? Oh, I do. Very much, very much. We are speaking with Marianne Williamson, who is running for U.S. Congress out in the 33rd District of the wonderful state of California. We are speaking with her for the hour. If you are on the line and want to or, you know, uh, at our website listening in, uh, in a little while we'll ask if you would like to call in, but I have further to go first with her. For those of you who don't know our website, www.abetterworld.tv, if you do not yet get our newsletter, a free newsletter every week going out to announce our weekly TV show and radio show based here in the Big Apple of New York City, please go and visit and uh, become part of a better world community. And uh, we're building community right here with you, Marianne, and it's wonderful to be of support to you and that is really what we we take stands. We're not. I'm not some kind of a journalist. I'm actually a holistic psychotherapist and stress management consultant. So I am free to do as I wish. I am right. not. I don't even make believe I'm neutral because I'm not. I have very strong feelings and opinions about what we need to do in our body politic and in our lives overall. And I do. Uh, psychologize, if you will, the situation. And I see a lot of very sad, wounded children populating Congress and the White House, if you will, and um, doing what they can to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but not doing very well. So love, affection, compassion, understanding are really the healing balms, I think, that are so needed, as well as sometimes something that would be an ouch, like stand up and do the right bloody 
thing. And I hear all of those elements, if I may say, in your voice and uh, your call to action. Would well, you? Well, thank you. You know, the fact that you say you live in New York, I'm going to be there on March 12th for a fundraiser. <clears throat> I'm yes. going to be at Town Hall with Marie Forleo and Chris Carr and Danielle Laporte and uh, Gabby Bernstein and others who are hoping that we can all make this uh, campaign successful. So I hope that uh, people who are listening can go to MarianneForCongress.com and find out about the New York fundraiser and find out about the campaign. And um, I just really appreciate anybody doing anything to connect with the campaign, find out more, and, and participate and interact in any way that's right. Wonderful, wonderful. And also right. along that same line, I know you were going to be doing a a Skype call of some sort with Sam Daly Harris, who is yes, conducting I a am. fundraiser yeah, out of that. his place in Princeton. Yes, yeah. in, <clears throat> and let's see what date that is. I'm not sure. I don't know if he gave you the date. Um, uh, could it be March 10th? I'm just doing that off the top of my head. I have it in the newsletter. And it's on your website, no matter is that one? Oh, yeah, I see it. March, March 10th, absolutely. So people oh, can go good. to uh, uh, com, And also, I, I have a new book out called uh, A Year of Miracles, uh, which is on Marianne.com. So. Exactly. It's a beautiful book that uh, just Thank arrived you. here, and I've been reading it. And I would like to see one of those miracles in June be that you win the primary, and then another November, so you might have to revise those two uh, months of the book. We'll see. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's tune in a little bit to uh, some of the subjects that face Congress on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, and you would be grappling with. And uh, some of those... Uh, are not being discussed, but really need to be discussed. One of them is something that's very imminent, actually, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I wanted to ask you about that and where you stand with that. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is absolutely horrible. It is nothing short of a uh, multinational corporate coup. The president wanted to fast-track it. It's a so-called trade deal. Sort of, some people have called it NAFTA on steroids, and mm-hmm. it would actually override American sovereignty. Um, for instance, if the United States, let's say the American people worked hard and got past a bill to uh, label or outlaw GMOs, well, Monsanto could then actually sanction the United States government for what it predicted would be its lost revenues. It actually makes multinational corporations more powerful than the U.S. government. Uh, the president wanted to fast-track this. Um, um, a person from, an official from his own Commerce Department, uh, in talking about why the deal was so secret, this was done in secret. They wanted to yes. pass this in secret, and they didn't want any Congress people or senators to be able to even read it. And one of the uh, Commerce Department officials actually said actually said that the reason the the, the, uh, government didn't want senators or congressmen to read it is because if that were the case, they probably wouldn't pass it. Yeah, duh, you think? (laughs) So I'm so glad that there has been the level of public scrutiny that there has been. Um, The president Mm -hmm. is not able now to just, uh, you know, run it through. Um, It it just boggles my mind, something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It is just... 
It is what happens when corporations are just handed the keys to to the government and yes. Uh, yes. basically told you take it from here. So I'm so glad that that uh, that um, that the American people have said uh, no. <laughs> now that doesn't mean so, that the deal is over, you know, but it does mean surely. that. You, and you're an example by asking about it. More people are finding out about it and. Um, yes. expressing some upset that yes. uh, this thing has even gotten as far as it has. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm not surprised at all about your point of view on it, and uh, I'm very glad that it is what it is. And Indeed, we uncovered this and did a show on it <coughs> months ago, and I've been aware of it for longer. But, yes, I, I uh, concur with your points. I'm very glad that you feel that way, and we have other matters of the sort. How would you deal with the issue of Syria, for instance? Well, you know, Congress doesn't of itself make any kind of policies that have to do with a country like Syria. Uh, the president, from the point of view of foreign policy, where do you feel the United States should be interceding or not interceding in the well, matter of Well, I'm not someone who thinks sort. that there is never a place uh, for uh, military intervention on a humanitarian basis. But I think that what is happening in the world today, particularly since the criminal invasion of, of Iraq, and I do think calling yes. it criminal is is not an overstatement. Um, no. I think it was one of the worst disasters. It was much like Vietnam. Yes. I think with Afghanistan it's harder because I was very, as many of us were, very concerned about women living under the Taliban even before uh, yes. this phase of our history in 9-11. <clears throat> so in in Afghanistan, I, you know what I would love to hear, and this, this is in Syria, this is in Afghanistan, this is in so many of these places. I want to hear the voices of the women. I want to hear the voices of women who actually live there and have children there. And recently there was a, a plan for a, a peace talk on Syria, where they were not inviting the women. So unfortunately, when it comes to things like Syria, it is not as simple as, as an easy-to-do list. You know, in, in some ways, you have some people that you would not want to be having dinner with tonight on both sides. Yes, yes. So it's, uh, yes. you know, there, there are many things in the world where governmental action is only part of the panoply of possibility. And yes. I think... A place like Syria is an example. I think all of us should be holding Syria in our prayers. Yes, yes. That's really well put. Uh, there aren't political solutions. There oftentimes are not militaristic solutions either. There's a solution of another order that we might not even have words for. And uh, prayer is probably one of the greatest uh, approaches. So that a solution, by the way, will arise. It's not a solution in itself, but that something of that creative genius of humanity can come forward and uh, inspire those who are doing such battle. Yeah, I, that's a very sensitive point that you made, Marianne, about that there are places for uh, military intervention at times in the world, it's such a question of yeah, well, I'm, uh, yeah, I where think and when. Well, yeah, I, yeah I'm not an isolationist. I'm not someone who thinks that there's never a reason for the United States to, uh, <clears throat> on a humanitarian basis, intervene. It's just that most of the places where we, we are 
active uh, militarily, we are not there for humanitarian purposes. You know, uh, one of the reasons I love the movie Argo was because I think many people, this was a popular film, and in addition to being just a good movie, it said something at the very beginning that I think many Americans did not realize, and that was that we had overthrown the democratically elected leader of Iran. Yes. Back, I, what was it, in the 50s? 1952 or three? Yeah, right. And we were the ones who put the Shah there, and then the Shah, who was a bad guy, but he was our bad guy. And yes. then that is what created the, the you know, Islamic Revolution. So gotcha. there are so many ways going back where our foreign policy was, and in many ways continues to be, this very narrow-minded, uh, almost imperialistic formula whereby we are told by our leaders that we are there to, quote-unquote, protect America's vital interests. Well, the average yeah. American needs to ask themselves, what does that really mean? What do, you, what do you think they're talking about when they say mm-hmm. the vital interests of the United States? Because to many of us, the vital interests of the United States would be doing more to actually build bridges between and among peoples. The vital interests of the United States, in order to truly wage peace, is to expand educational opportunities for children and economic opportunities for women around the world. That's what we would do if we were really out to protect our vital national interests. But when you have military spending of six to $800 billion a year, which is if you take all of the military spending of all the nations in the world and you put it together, right, and then just a number, just under twice that, that's how much we spend. And I don't think anybody, any serious American really believes that all of that money and all of that military is for the sole purpose of making us safe because I don't believe that that amount of money is directly related to how safe we are. We need a robust military and and the best. Of course we do. But like I said, if really what we were interested in is a more peaceful world, we would have far more uh, uh, support for those educational and economic opportunities that I mentioned. So something Indeed. there's so much rot there. There is so much, so much acceptance of false premises that the American people are are being asked to swallow. And I yeah. think more and more people are asking now. You know, should we continue with this? I mean, I think if the if during the decades before 9/11. If more people around the world had seen the American flag decal on roads and schools and hospitals, if they had really felt that the United States was always propping up the democratic forces rather than sometimes in this unbelievably hypocritical way, propping up forces that they knew in their hearts were not democratic, then we might not be where we are today and 9-11 itself might not have unfolded the way it did. So, you know, sometimes you have to take a very sober mature, nuanced, uh, take a real appraisal of what's going on, not only in your individual life, but in your national life. If we just look at it like what to do about Syria, what to do about this, what to do about that, the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone, you know. These things are all connected. And I think what we need to stop doing is this kind of imperialistic prancing around the world, like we have all the answers, and if you don't like it, our military just might come and get you. Exactly. I, your your points are very well made, and I, you know, since you quoted the the film Argo, uh, I was just thinking about the film that I want to see again with Robert Redford, who is a PhD in Washington, who is working for the CIA, decoding novels. Do you remember the three no, days of the Condor? What? 
novel. Oh, yeah, Santa Condor, right. Yeah, do you remember that? And um, it's a brilliant, I thought it was a brilliant film, very hard mm-hmm. to watch at first, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen it in years. But at the very end, considered it a spoiler kind of line, but um, the two CIA agents, I believe, are talking among themselves, Marianne, and one mm-hmm. says to the other, well, you know why we have to do all of this. It's to protect the American way of life. You know Americans don't want to do without their luxuries and their things and their lifestyle. Therefore, we have to go around the world in the name of national security and national Mm -hmm. interests and control the oil everywhere we go. And it's a bit of a sarcastic line because he's sort of mocking the whole perspective that that's not really what needs to take place, but that's what people think they need, and we as the CIA think that that's what people want. But most deeply, just as you said, to share food and the fishing rod and education and things that upgrade the culture of all of the beautiful countries around the world, to the extent that we as materially wealthier can do that, That is being heroic, and that is a new definition of national interest and security, by the way. Right, exactly. (laughs) Desperate people, large groups of desperate people should be considered a national security risk because desperate people do desperate things. So anytime we ignore desperate people, whether they are in in a corner of an American city or in a corner of the world far away, we are contributing to the the probability, at least the possibility, that they will be more vulnerable to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces. And then if we yes. say to our government, fix it, and the only, the only answer that the government has is to build more prisons or drop more bombs, then we are in a terribly unstable, even immoral uh, formula uh, for, our, for going forward. You make but I think that Im- the American people do not want to think that our government allows people to die, including our own people, uh, our yes. own military, uh, yes. just so that we can get oil. I don't think that that's what the American, the average Mm-mm. American would want at all. Um, no. Not at all. I think the American people are good. I think we're noble. I think we have a conscience. I think we're decent. I just think we have been very misinformed and misguided by our leaders for a very long time. Indeed. Uh, Hallelujah. And amen, as they say. A point I would like to underscore that you made that can't be emphasized enough is essentially, and I'm quoting, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, the systemic and holistic nature of the knee bone being connected to the thigh bone. And I love that song, by the way. And, um, really? Maybe that's why I started singing it early in my life, and maybe that's why I'm so holistic. <laughs> but you cannot pull out just one place like Syria or any others, domestic or international, without looking at the overall perspective and belief system that we as a nation hold and have and nurture. And then you can understand everything in context. If you look at things as factionalized, fractionalized, 
little pieces of a whole without getting the whole itself, you will never be able to get everything solved. But if you see, look, it was Einstein who asked the pivotal question, is the universe friendly? And of course, if we say yes, we're going to be relating to each other very differently. And of course, if we say no, we'll be suspicious, we'll be slightly hostile, and we'll always be looking over our shoulder and need lots of ammunition. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I think that it's time for people to think for themselves. You know, my father used to say, used to remind us of the... Um, uh, the Byzantine rule, it was called, which is nothing is ever what it seems like. Mm, um, so, yes, yes. Yeah. Beware of appearances. That's right. Beware of that appearances. idea. Be, beware of the official line. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Beware of that. I'd love to just engage you to share with our audience um, what you feel in your hierarchy and your system of prioritization of ideas that you really want to convey to people so that your candidacy can be made real and substantive. It's awesome that you're not taking any PAC money, that you're not taking corporate funds, but you're really doing a grassroots campaign. It's very laudable, and I want to make sure that you have this forum to reach out to people because most people listen actually in archive and you too will have this link to the show that you can use for your campaign in any way that could be of service. Well, let's be clear here. You know, it's not a matter of making the campaign real or making it substantive. This campaign is real. Uh, This campaign has been going on for several months now, and this campaign is substantive. If anybody Mm -hmm. goes to my website, MarianneForCongress.com, you can see this, and this campaign is credible. So, uh, oh, definitely. Yeah, well, let me say, let me just add more. <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that that's is what yeah. any individual feels moved to give. You know, I yes. I always say five and five, five dollars and five friends. Um, yes. it, it's amazing uh-huh. what just any effort that is right for you can make. It does. Uh, uh, it does take a lot of resources in order to, you know, if you have a a district like ours, over 700,000 people and over 400,000 uh, registered voters. You know, you can't meet all those people at house parties. Um, yes. And you, you right. the kind of staff necessary to reach that many people, the kind of resources necessary to reach that kind of people, do not just come on a volunteer basis. We have great volunteers, but there yes. obviously has to be a skeletal staff, and believe me, these people are not making a lot of money. So when yeah. you're talking about um, a grassroots campaign, I think many people, you know, you people who are listening could give $5 a month uh, until through the primary on June 3rd, and I don't think you'd notice that $5. It's like, you know, a, a latte, yes. but right. it can make a difference to a campaign. So, you sure. know, and as I said before, uh, social media and all of that kind of stuff. So and people living in this district, of course, house parties, fundraisers, all of the things that make up uh, volunteering. We have a Thursday night volunteer meeting every Thursday night in Venice. So anybody mm-hmm. that goes to MarianneForCongress.com will see all of these things. And just talk to your friends, particularly if you have friends out here. And um, it's all about just the accumulation of energy and buzz and people remembering that the primary in California is on June 3rd. Make sure you're registered. Make sure your friends are registered. And it just unfolds like that. 
And what, so this is actually very instructive because part of what you are seeking to establish is courage in other people like you and me and many of our friends and colleagues to actually step up to the plate in their own respective states and run also. Well, absolutely. I mean, no matter where you live, you have a congressional election this, this exactly. year because the mid, you know, every two years, every member of Congress uh, is elected or reelected. Can turn so, over. Yeah. Right. Have, yeah, absolutely, right. every two years. So whoever so, you are uh, and wherever you are. You're laying out you're, this sort of bricks and mortar uh, what it takes to run is actually almost a how-to guide and right. this is what we need you know this is the shopping list we need you know five dollars a month from each of five friends and come to some of the volunteer meetings you need staff you need interns, you need volunteers, you need people to spread the word. What, pardon my, you know, ignorance, I'm uh, just a New Yorker, but what is the district in the 33rd district? It's L.A., south it's, of L.A.? No, what is it? No, it's Malibu all the way down through Rancho Palos Verdes and in from Santa Monica, Agoura Hills, Topanga, <clears throat> Calabasas, Brentwood, Pacific Palisades, oh, Beverly Hills, yes. Partial Westwood. It's a really big quite wonderful very creative district yes i have friends and relatives out there marianne well they're going to be hearing from me get in touch with them thank you thank you i will sure of course no i think it's great so this is it's a grassroots campaign you're not taking money could you not taking taking lobbyist money but i'm certainly taking individuals monies up to the oh somebody can give up to twenty six hundred dollars somebody can give as little as three dollars whatever you feel moved to give Okay. Could you share with us how much is actually needed? Uh, you, do you know how you much need is needed of to dollars really? To run a, yeah, you need millions you need of dollars. Millions of dollars. A campaign that's competitive. You know, I said before, yes. I'm a credible campaign. To become a competitive campaign, you need to be able to pay for TV ads and as much as you do with digital and so forth. So, yes, you know, people you. who do feel that this is what they want to see in Congress, I hope that they will ask in their own hearts what might be the right move for them. And then if everything, sure, you know, it's sure. like everything else. If everybody does what they feel in their heart that they're supposed to do, then this world will be fine. That's right. I agree with you. Now, this is a very interesting phenomenon, Marianne, that uh, Henry Waxman, after 40 years of dedicated service in Congress, has just said he's stepping down. What do you think of that, and how do you think that affects your situation? Well, it certainly changes the landscape of the race, whether it makes it better or worse, harder or easier. It depends on, who, you know, everybody's opinion is different. But the message yeah. of this campaign was the same two weeks before Congressman Waxman announced his retirement as it will be two weeks after he announced his retirement because yeah. it, it, I never felt he was my opponent. I don't feel that the people who are running now are my opponents. I'm, 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 giving a conver- I'm having a conversation with the American people, which is different than the conversation being um, had with the same stale, same old, same old yes. you know, political conversation. Sure. That's all. Which is having a different as usual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I understand. In fact, it's interestingly more in the domain of cooperative and engaging than competitive and me only. It's sort of a almost an egoic 
narcissistic me, me, me. This is an us, us, us. That's right. what I hear from you. Well, yeah, and instead of, you know, I know what you want, I'll give it to you, vote for me, it's like saying to everyone, um, it's together we can do something beautiful. Yes, yes, yes. So God I have bless. another interview I have to run to now. I am so sorry. Okay. Um, I thank okay. you so much, though, Mitchell, for giving me this opportunity to be on your program. I appreciate your wisdom. I appreciate your insight and I'm really grateful that you give me this opportunity. God bless. Thank you so okay, much God for what you're you doing. And you. we will talk again. We'll do this again. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Surely. God bless. Bye-bye now. Marianne Williamson running for United States Congress, the 33rd District in California, the larger L.A. area, where indeed I have many dear friends and relatives. I have cousins in Malibu, and oh my, they will be learning, if they don't know already, of her candidacy. It really takes courage and a lot of fortitude, and as we say in New York, chutzpah, to step up to this plate and really grab the bull by its horns. I know I have borne witness to other uh, friends, colleagues of mine, who have done this. And uh, John Hagelin, who I got to know after he started running for uh, president of the Natural Law Party, he was a professor of physics at Harvard. And he was a meditator with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi uh, University in Fairfield, Iowa. And they formed a think tank out there. He with Mike Tompkins at the time, whose uh, great-grandfather, I believe it was, was a one-time governor of New York State, uh, after whom the Tompkins Square Park was named, just down the block from our office and studio, and uh, a number of others, uh, Bob Ross and others, convened the think tank and decided that the way to improve America was to actually form their own independent or third party that was not based on money, that was actually based on the notions of nature, of natural law, in fact, of according with that as a, as a guide for our body politic. And uh, John, a brilliant fellow in himself, Self and who was uh, in the films What the Bleep Do We Know and also The Secret and probably a few others of similar documentary ilk said, why don't we administer an EEG test to the candidates? I thought that was brilliant. So you, we have some idea as to... Uh, what is the relative intelligence to be able to make quality decisions on our behalf? Instead of just being a race to the finish for personal gain and personal power or a party's power, it was really about service and of being qualified to render that service. For instance, if someone was not qualified 
for the Olympics, they would not be able to serve in the Olympics. They would have to have a body and a mind so sound, so coherent to meet the criteria. Otherwise, they're not allowed into the game. But in our body politic as it stands now, if you have sufficient money, then you can get catapulted over the top and at least get into some office and occupy it no matter what your agenda may be. I would like to see us restored to the fundamental priority of service, that we are working together cooperatively for each other, for each community, not one state against another, not one community against competitively another, but that all prosper and all do well, that all take care of their neediest, their homeless, their unemployed, their infirm. It's not mysterious, folks. It's not uh, wayward values. It's really the heart's values and where we've been really all along, our deepest alignment. And out of that great simplicity, we can have a better world. Of course, that's the game we play here at A Better World Radio and TV. So make sure you tune in every week and uh, tune in and get the download, friends, because uh, this is the nature of the download. It's about upliftment. It's about education. It's about inspiration that each of us in our own lives can bring to the collective table. Well, sure, bring to your own kitchen table, but also share a larger table with everyone else so we can do this together in concert, so to speak, in unison and uh, make some real music. So I want to just thank Marianne Williamson uh, again for uh, stepping up to the plate and sitting at our collective dinner table to do what she's doing, but she can only do what she's doing as a function of our collective participation. And yes, that involves money in the wacky world in which we live. Money is required as one of the engines to generate. It's not the only one. Do not think that. That is not the case. But it is needed to uh, really operate a campaign. Some people do need to get paid. And... Uh, to pay their rent and all else and a lot of heart and a lot of participation so please do go to uh com, her website offhand well it's in our newsletter on a few different places so certainly check that out at our website www.abetterworld.tv under newsletter, you can get it all there, and I think it's spread out along the home page as well. So, also, last on that, she will be in New York, for those of you listening from the greater tri-state area, on March 12th at Town Hall as a fundraiser. I think that might be $100 each, and uh, what flexibility there is, I couldn't tell you, but that I have heard. Okay, so I'm glad you're joining us today, and know that now we're going to be turning our attention 
to another very important subject, uh, not here in the United States as such, but of course because we encourage systems thinking, holistic thinking, it has an impact on us here even in the urban cities of New York and Washington, D.C. on the East Coast and elsewhere. We have joining us now Sally Cox, who's the president and co-founder of the international nonprofit organization Bonobo Conservation Initiative. Known as Mama Bonobo, Sally has worked tirelessly over 20 years to protect bonobos, preserve the Congo rainforest, and empower Congolese communities as leaders in conservation. Well, we're very glad to have Sally joining us today on A Better World to talk about her work. And uh, yes, some of that does involve money raising, actually. But first, we need to know more about the Peace Forest and your good work, Sally. So welcome to A Better World. Thank you so much, Mitchell. It's a real honor to be with you. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. First of all, tell us about uh, who a bonobo is relative to the human species, and what is it that captured your imagination so much about them? Well, you know, bonobos are our closest relatives. They're the creatures on this planet most closely related to humans, along with chimpanzees, our better-known cousins. But bonobos are very, very different from chimpanzees. And that's mm -hmm. what captivated me when I first learned about them 21 years ago. I was working uh, at National Geographic as a writer and on a book about the great apes. And, you know, I'd heard about gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees, but I'd never heard about bonobos. And what's so amazing is most people on this planet still haven't. Most educated Americans still don't know about bonobos. And Interesting. Yes, a, so the, yeah, are you saying are they are relatives. not... They are, they're, they're our closest relatives, but they are not a chimp. They are not. And in fact, they're, they're very, very different from chimpanzees in terms of their society. They look similar to chimps, although bonobos' bodies and faces are more human-like. They're more lithe and gracile. They walk on two feet more often and more easily. Their faces are flatter, more like humans without that big uh, brow ridge. But what's so fascinating is their society. So chimpanzees have a male-dominated, competitive society, whereas bonobos have a matriarchal society where peace and cooperation is the norm. And chimps happen to be the only primate other than humans that actually wages violent wars and attacks on others of their own kind, usually over territory and natural resources. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? but most yes, human wars are waged ever. Uh, but bonobos, on the other hand, are made as, known as the make-love-not-war apes, and they're the only primate <laughs> other than humans that has sex for recreation as well as for procreation. Really? And they're bisexual. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> they're you mean as they're bisexual <laughs> as a rule or as an exception, or what? Percentage. No, definitely as a rule. You know, some scientists call them pansexual because sexuality, you know, permeates really all aspects of bonobo life. Um, wow. But in the wild, actually, female-female contact is the most common type of sexual contact. 
Um, but they do it in every form and flavor. They have sex in a missionary (laughs) position looking into each other's eyes. And, and you know, no other ape does that. They have their bodies are built for it, like ours. Oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah. uh And, but since you're talking about sex, I mean, everybody loves this subject. So, are you saying that uh, they also experiment? I mean, Kama Sutra style with any number of different um, acrobatic uh, styles of lovemaking? Well, you know, they're. they're I don't mean necessarily acrobatic. I mean, elaborate. have you ever had sex hanging from one hand from a tree limb? <laughs> you know, I haven't. Upside Admittedly. down, sideways. <laughs> Yeah, I think we can learn a lot from them in that regard. They, uh, <laughs> they have influenced the Kama Sutra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just so funny. I mean, but it's fascinating that there is the sense of intimacy that occurs from looking at each other and having sex as recreation instead of simply reproduction. That is such a distinction. That we it, always it really, thought, really I admittedly thought that was a, a singularly human enterprise. No, nope, it's not. I mean, of course, they have it in all other kinds of positions too, but that, that's quite common. And you know, the thing is that bonobos are just—they're—they're they're super intelligent and they're—they're they're very compassionate and empathic uh, with each other. So. It's not just the sex, you know, they 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 have a very uh uh loving society really in, in many ways. And when you say it's matriarchal, Sally, what describe what that looks like. How does that show up? Well, you know, the females are in charge and they are by banding together, which I think is a pretty smart strategy. So, you know, mm-hmm. males are larger in size but um but females, the ranking female is the leader of the group, and her son is the ranking male. But females band together, so the males can't bully them around. And, mm. um, you know, it's very different from chimpanzee society. You know, males have to ask a female if they want sex, for example. And she can say, mm-hmm. she can refuse in bonobo society. Yeah. But in chimp society, you know, females, they only have sex when the female is fertile. And then, you know, it's the the big guy gets the girl, and she has to sneak around and have sex with other males so that they think it might be her child if she has a baby because they also commit infanticide, which bonobos do not do either. Not mm. that chimps aren't wonderful in many, many other ways, but it's really a, it's, they're like the yin and yang of human nature in terms of what they yes. represent. Interesting, yeah. So it's like the bonomo, bonobo is the feminine principle and the chimp the masculine. Exactly. Yeah. Mm, interesting. What mm-hmm. What else do you feel we should know about the bonobo and their society? Which is obvious. You've you feel very passionate about, which is why you've set this up, this initiative up, and we'll get to that. But uh, for our audience, I would love for us to all. I'm getting educated here myself. Please of more about their society from which we could possibly learn instructively for our own. We're not doing such a good job of it all ourselves. No kidding. I think we have a great deal. <laughs> our discussion <laughs> about politics with Marianne was just kind of I know. In, in, implicating. 
<laughs> yes, please. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think that there's a great deal we can learn about bonobos and need to, especially at this time on our planet, you know, where yes. we, we have to start sharing resources and cooperating with each other if we want to save ourselves. So I think it's quite interesting that they're just coming to light now, you know. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a reason for that, cosmically. Um, mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bonobos, when they meet other groups of bonobos in the forest, they share food and they have a little orgy, as opposed to fighting and killing each other over the, over the resources. And yeah. I think, you know, this is really, I mean, it's almost becoming urgent for the human yeah. race to... Uh, emulate those qualities. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, with the threat of climate change and so on, which is another aspect of how bonobos are actually helping humans. Um, that's do it's tell, funny that do tell. Your, your show is named uh, A Better World, and my latest talk was was titled How an Ape Can Lead Us to a Better World. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Because, uh, uh-huh. indeed... You know, helping bonobos helps every single person on the planet. You know, not only by understanding ourselves, but because of where they live, um, they happen to inhabit the heart of the second largest rainforest on the planet, which is like the second lung of the earth. And they themselves are serving as a flagship, as a symbol of peace, and, and they're motivating local communities to protect the forest. So they've actually helped us protect, you know, right now we've we've set aside land that's equal to the size of Massachusetts and Rhode Island combined and the mm-hmm. Peace Forest is growing. So, um, you know, how and much, it's... How much acreage really, is that? It's uh, about um, over three, 13,000 square miles of land. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, the whole and when you say forest, set aside... Do you mean you have the cooperation of the Congolese government to create, essentially, I hear it sounds like a reserve? Uh, yes, we've created two reserves so far. Um, one is the Kokolo-Puri Bonobo Reserve, and the other is the Sankuru Nature Reserve. And mm-hmm. Sankuru is, is larger than Belgium, which is kind of ironic, the former colonial power that rules the Congo. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> it's about the uh-huh. size of Massachusetts. It's an interesting and, way to measure it then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Paris is about the size of Rhode Island. And um, in our vision for the Peace Forest, though, when we got started, we realized that, you know, when I got into this, I, I practically nothing was being done to protect bonobos. And there was a terrible war raging in the Congo for most of the 1990s, didn't end until 2003. And that war, you know, killed more people than any war since World War II. And Mm. so here's this amazing, peaceful creature in the middle of, you know, some of the worst chaos and human atrocities that the history has ever seen. Um, Yes. And uh, so, you know, getting started, it was like, you know, well, what do you do? <laughs> First, you've yeah. got to find out where they live. Um, and yeah. we realized that the the old model of creating a national park and drawing a boundary and throwing the people out wouldn't work um, in our consultations with people, that it's the mm-hmm. people who share that forest with the bonobos that mm-hmm. are the key to protecting them. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and in enough. turn... 
Exactly. Yeah. So we've created a model with the, our partners in the Congo that that uh, links conservation and sustainable development, livelihood support, so that the people are benefiting um, and really, you know, are leading the effort. Yeah. So. Yeah. We're making some That's progress. Wonderful. So there's a lot. To what be done. You're, tell, tell us about the progress you're making. Tell us about the obstacles. Well, like I said, you know, it was there were a couple of milestones by officially protecting those areas, um, and both of them are community managed. So this is a new model for conservation where mm-hmm. uh, the local communities are in charge. Um, but the vision is to create a constellation. You know, a, a, a linked. Uh, band of, of these community areas um, yes. that uh, you know will protect a large swath of the habitat, and we have you know many other or several other sites active uh, which are in line and really functioning as reserves already. Um, mm-hmm. But it's challenging. You know, we have our work has exponentially expanded. Um, we have hundreds of people that we support every month and need to support. And yeah. uh, so while people on the ground, you know, basically, exactly. Pe- so I heard you yeah. just, you know, mentioning that money was essential <laughs> to Marianne's yes. uh, campaign. And I'm and it's yes. really our biggest challenge, um, to tell you the truth, uh, is raising the funds that are needed to to support the work, because yeah. we have we don't have a problem. You know, a lot of people think, oh, my God, you know, the Congo, it's. People are so warlike. Well, actually, they're not. In the bonobo mm-hmm. habitat, it's traditionally been peaceful, and mm-hmm. you know we have. They're putting in their own time and effort, um, and just a little bit of support really goes a long way. So, yeah. um, we're launching a membership campaign, trying to help get, you know, uh, those monthly donations, even as little as ten dollars a month, um, really, mm-hmm. really makes a difference um, in the work. So. Um, what, what is your website? You know, our website is is bonobo dot org b o n o b o dot org, and you can find all kinds of information and how to help there. We also welcome volunteers. We believe every single person can make a difference, and yeah. much of our work has been fueled by you know dedicated volunteers. So there are many ways That's people beautiful. can help. Now, mm-hmm. how many bonobos are there? What is the population, and is it growing or is it diminishing, and why? Well, the bonobos are very rare to begin with. Um, you know, their habitat is small. They just live south of the Congo River, so they just live in one country. Uh, and right now, current estimates you know, range for as little as 10,000 bonobos to maybe 25,000. It's very, very small numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been doing, and other groups who are working in the habitat now have been doing surveys, but it's, it's, we still don't know the exact number. Um, and in some places, you know, where we've been able to support the conservation efforts, you know, bonobos are definitely, um, you know, protected and populations are growing in some areas. But in many other areas, they're not. And the problem is that, you know, people hunt them. The worst threat to bonobos is hunting for the bushmeat trade, which mm-hmm. is trade and smoked meat. People will kill really almost anything that moves in the forest and smoke oh. it 
uh, and carry it to market. And, you know, this has been one of the, the legacies of the, the destruction of Congo War is that all the infrastructure was broken down. So cases, you know, the only commodity that a person can get to market, you know, if his child needs medicine or school fees or if he needs money for any reason, is smoked meat, you know. Uh, so that is really one of the biggest drivers. I thought it was that, and I thought it was also charcoal. Well, that's impacting Charred the mountain wood. gorillas quite a bit. That's that's really having mm-hmm. a much greater impact on the mountain gorillas. Okay. In the case of bonobo, there, you know, that that is a threat in some places, but bonobos inhabit this vast lowland rainforest. Uh, yes. Mountain gorillas are confined to the Virunga Mountains, and you know, a, a place where there's just very, very intense human encroachment. And the population, you know, within the bonobo habitat, while it's growing, um, it's a polygamous society. <laughs> so you have a lot uh-huh. of kids or a lot of wives. And, um, yeah. uh, uh-huh. But, uh, you know, but relatively speaking, in some places, you know, it's less than one person per, per square kilometer. So the density of human population is relatively low. But the problem yes. is bonobos only have... Uh, they only, you know, have uh, infants once every four to five years, and then they only have oh. one. You Even know, with so all that you... sex, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. Mm. I know. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, killing killing a group of bonobos, they don't bounce back. You know, they... Right. So it's really, really right. rather... It's really urgent. That... What What is their cycle, their birth cycle, in terms of... Uh... From uh, from inception, from zygote to birth, it's about the same as a human. Um, about the same gestation period, and um, and in fact, their cycles, their you know, their menstrual cycle is is very close to humans. And in in some really? cases, women who have been working with bonobos in zoos in Europe, their cycles started <laughs> mimicking the bonobos. Really? Uh-huh. Another testimony to how closely related we really are. Yeah. That happens. <laughs> I mean, there have been studies about, you know, women living in the same dormitory, all of their cycles will synchronize, you know. So exactly. I guess it's, it's trans species, you know. Sure. <laughs> um, now, why do you think, Sally, that, speaking, by the way, just to let everyone know, with Sally Cox, who is the president and co-founder of the international nonprofit organization Bonobo Conservation Initiative. In fact, she just returned from the Congo again, where she has been going for many years now. She's been working tirelessly with the Bonobo for over 20 years to protect them, to protect the Congo rainforest, and to empower Congolese communities that are working to help conserve the bonobo population and culture and culture. So uh, it's really a pleasure to have you on to talk about this. This is so powerful. I'm curious, though, Sally, why is it that it seems like it's only in this one area and one country that the bonobos live and thrive? Well, you know, Do you have any sense of that? Over the years well, that you've it, been studying? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's ironic, you know, in a way. Uh-huh. Um, but they, you know, it, it's a series of evolution are that, that bonobos and chimpanzees, you know, our common ancestors split off. And bonobos and chimps, uh, their habitats got separated by the development of the Congo River. And oh. so you find bonobos just south. The Congo River makes a big arc, so like an upside-down U. And bonobos uh-huh. live just south in that very rich rainforest south of the river, the Congo yeah. Basin. And chimps and gorillas are found north of the Congo River. So they never, they never, uh-huh. um, their habitats never overlap. Um, Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But do you know why they did not show up like, Lions and tigers and bears and elephants, and you will find different animals in different parts of the world, let alone in different parts of one continent such as Africa. So do I understand you correctly that it's only in that area of the Congo that bonobos have been found at all? Mm-hmm, Exactly. And, you know, they were the last ape to be discovered. They were discovered in 1929 and officially, you know, described as a separate species in 1932, but then only by means of a skull in a museum in Belgium. And they weren't actually studied in the wild until the mid-1970s, more than a full decade after Jane Goodall got started with the the chimps. And Diane Fossey with the gorillas and Barute Galdikas with the orangutans. Um, and then most of the research was done by Japanese scientists. So very little was known, yeah. you know. And back then also yeah. they were they were named pygmy chimpanzees at first because oh. when they discovered that they were a separate species by the means of the skull in the museum, you know, they thought that it was a diminutive form of chimp, but actually it was just a juvenile skull. And yeah. uh, it wasn't until much more was learned that, you know, it was decided that the name should be changed because they're not just a diminutive form of chimp, you know. So there's been a lot of reasons why bonobos have been sort of under the radar. You know, there's been, they've been under a veil kind of, and uh, yes. and people haven't known about them. So what even in the bonobo Congo, mean? when I got started, yeah. oh. well, that's, that's a funny word, and everyone's trying to, you know, the theory of how that word got, you know, started yeah, coined. You know, being used to <laughs> coin, yeah. exactly, um, was uh, that it was a misspelling on a crate from a town called Bolobo, which is near <laughs> where Bonobos live. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but it seems to fit them pretty well, you know. It's People a use it as a word. verb, too. <laughs> yes, like exactly. let's go bonobo tonight. Let's go bonobo, <laughs> yeah. right? After you, you know, it's funny that you say this because a good friend of mine came up to me not not long ago at the Union Square Farmers Market and said, "You know, of all animals, you remind me of the bonobo." <laughs> he said to me affectionately. <laughs> oh, that's I quite thought, a compliment. Isn't I that think. Sweet. Yeah, I took it as a compliment, you know. I, sure, that is a uh, – I wouldn't say I, I um, follow in all of their habits, especially all their sexual habits, but nonetheless, it's, it's <laughs> a very kind kind of comment, you know. And, uh, Absolutely. I well, if you'd ever met one, which sometime you should, 
um, you know, you would you would understand that that really, really is a compliment. And that bonobos, yeah. as much as we, you know, their sexuality is the thing that gets people's attention, but, you know, there are a lot of other aspects to them. I mean, another sure. thing about bonobos is clear. just, yeah, they really are. You know, you just, you look in their eyes and the depth of their intelligence and their uh, their awareness, you know, is, is just powerful. How would you describe and their humor? Do you see playfulness and humor? I imagine you would. Oh, absolutely. And they can be very mischievous, too. Some of my best friends, my first bonobo teachers are bonobos that broke the language barrier that proved there's a bonobo named Kanzi and his sister Cambonesia, um, and they broke the language barrier. They proved what do you that, mean? well, um, through the work of a scientist named Sue Savage Rumbaugh, who used to be down in Georgia State University in Atlanta, um, she demonstrated that bonobos started learning human language and using it naturally, just like a human child, if they were reared in an environment where it was used. So, you know, there were all these experiments back in the 70s, uh, early 80s, uh, trying to teach um, sign language. In fact, Coco the gorilla is probably the most well-known ape um, that does Mm -hmm. use, you know, ASL with her hands. But there are a lot of naysayers who didn't want to believe, you know. Uh, you know, when Jane Goodall discovered that, that chimpanzees used tools, you know, it used to be mm-hmm. tool-making was the dividing line between humans between and other animals. Between humans and apes, right? Right. The, the man was the tool-maker. So once that got tossed out by Jane's discovery, you know, language was the dividing line. And now, yes. you know, so a lot of people didn't want to admit it and... So what Sue devised was a sign language that's lexigrams, symbols that that represent words, and they're hooked up to a computer keyboard. And they were trying to teach a wild-caught bonobo named Matata um, how to use these, you know, what symbols meant words. And Matata, you know, was a older bonobo, and she was from the wild, and she just really wasn't that interested. And her little son, Kanzi, was two and a half years old, and he'd been with her this whole time when the researchers were trying to teach her these lexigrams. And so one day, Matata was sent away to be bred, to, to breed, and Kanzi was by himself. And that very first day, he used 12 different words to ask for what he wanted. And that's when English they realized words. that... English words. English words. Well, yes, they're English words, but they're on a keyboard, they're symbols. So okay. to him yeah. it's a symbol, but he hears the English word. Yeah. And Bonobo and he tries to talk. Yeah. Exactly. So it's um you know, it's a symbol language. Um yes. but they try to talk but they can't make consonant sounds because of the 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 way their trachea is shaped. Um, yes, yes, and, and the so. way they make sounds by you know, organically and they never learned early enough how to shape English sounds. Yeah, and actually they can't. They actually try to, but they they Uh can't because they can't make a consonant sound because their trachea. We have a right angle in our trachea, but and they don't. Their their anatomy is different. So it's an actual anatomical difference that prevents that. Exactly. But in in tests, you know, against a five year old child, Conti did better than a five year old on language you know, recognition of really? odd sentences. Yeah, they give him, you know, weird commands like 
go get the ball that's outside and put it in the microwave. And he does it every time. (laughs) Really? Yes. So even sentences and imperatives with complexity, they were able to execute. Absolutely. And they understand a great deal more spoken English than they have the words on this keyboard to reproduce. But they have quite a large vocabulary. Interesting. Oh, my. Sally, the work you're doing to protect these beings is just profound. (laughs) It really is. Uh, In support of this, interestingly, is a book that you uh, referenced to me earlier uh, by, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Denis Béchard, entitled Empty Hands, Open Arms, The Race to Protect Bonobos and Make Conservation Go Viral. I love that name. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about this and how it relates to your initiative. Thank you. Well, yeah, we have been so blessed uh, by Denise's interest in our work, and he just did an amazing job on this book. It was just released a few months ago, um, so it's hot off the press, and we're still in the middle of book tour. He's been going all around North America. Um, but uh-huh. he came into the field. Uh, he worked for solidly, you know, for a few years on this book and spent a good deal of time with us in the forest and just studying, you know, our work. And he he really does an amazing job uh, in the book because mm-hmm. he understands that how we work with the Congolese people. So the book, you know, profiles two of our most important Congolese leaders and you really get a, a sense of their lives and, and what it's you know, what they've gone through and what their motivation was to try to protect mm-hmm. their forests. And um so it's full it's delightfully written. There's you know, great adventure stories, really great historical perspective in the story, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um but you mentioned the title. So which part of the title intrigues you the most? The going viral or the empty the <laughs> hands over the Well that was a wonderful <laughs> flourish at the end, you know. The whole idea of making uh the notion so dear to so many of our hearts of conservation go viral, you know. I I just love there was an email that went out years ago that said important virus spreading around the world read further and that was in the subject line something of that sort and then when you opened it up it said love is infectious and it's showing up everywhere in every community and every country across the world there's nothing that can stop it folks you know it's just this delightful (laughs) funny playful idea that you can't stop love (laughs) and so you know when you say conservation you know that people can get really kind of bitten by an idea if you will and they just won't let it go that everyone will just tune in and understand that this is an ecosystem we're all part of it bonobo human chimp and all of us and it's a as I love quoting Reverend Jesse Jackson, who said, we may have all taken different boats here, but we're all in the same boat now. And uh, <laughs> at that point, yeah, you know, different great. boats maybe to planet Earth. And we're all in the same boat now, and we all better really learn 
to cooperate and to conserve the magnificent ecosystem we've got of which bonobos and humans are part and uh, get along with each other. Well, you know, there is a real... Exactly. I'm so with you, uh, you know. uh, But the, the, the fact is that in the Congo, the Peace Forest is going viral. And that's what that means in the title, oh. is that it's actually self-replicating. So yes. communities, um, the Kokolopuri Bonobo Reserve was, is the pilot and the, the place where we've been able to do the most. And uh, it, through providing opportunities for people in neighboring communities to participate in our work or training programs and yes. you know, community development programs, a number of things, they got inspired. I mean, in one case, so we have three more communities where, where leaders have gone. And in one case, a guy, uh, Roger Afalende, had worked with us, trained with us, and went and worked on a survey in another area. And he was so inspired that he took the salary that he earned from BCI and went back to his community, talked to the elders, convinced them that it was important to protect the bonobos, and he used his salary to start his own association and get this program going in his community. And so mm-hmm. that's, you know, really, really happening. And that's why, you know, the work is really, you know, expanding and self-relating. Yes. So it's, it's, yes, exactly. I yeah. love that. That's just that's such a good story, Sally. It's such a good story. The whole thing is a good story, and we want it to be an even better story by people uh, stepping up to the plate and helping to support, if you feel moved out there, to help support this movement, this initiative that Sally uh, and others have been instrumental Mm -hmm. in advancing, please do go to her website and uh, participate in whatever way you see fit. So last words to our audience, Sally. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, and I encourage everyone to log on to www.bonobo.org and learn more about bonobos and help any way you can. They really, really need help, and uh, every little bit makes a difference. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today and uh, sharing your experience and uh, wisdom with us. I really, really appreciate your heartfelt compassion for both the bonobo and the forest the second lung of the world so important thank you and the people there they're great yes they're most important too (laughs) god yes absolutely (laughs) we're all in this together we're all in this together exactly wonderful sally thanks so much for joining us thank you mitchell My pleasure. Great. My pleasure. Okay. God bless. Thank you. Well, we have had a full show today, folks. It's been a very full show, or as Ed Sullivan said many years ago, around this time when he was introducing the Beatles, we're going to have a very good show tonight. A big, big show. Anyway, yes, we should really commemorate the Beatles also did any of you see uh, the Beatles um, that that show the other night, Sunday night, uh, commemorating the 50 years since that Ed Sullivan show? Oh, I was watching it with my family way back then. Oh, yes. 
wouldn't miss that one. And uh, it's just great to see it. It felt wonderful to both reminisce, the nostalgia, but it was a different world, you know. It had lots of troubles, God knows. It had lots of some of the same troubles that we have today. But there was also an underlying, uplifting sensibility that we're trying to create again. God knows that too. (laughs) So today's show, you should definitely get that sensibility in your in your bones from all that Marianne Williamson was sharing with us earlier and what Sally Cox was just sharing with us just now. You know, we have both the domestic body politic with which to deal and the international or global uh, rainforest politic and body with which to deal and all of it converges into our being the caretakers, our being the stewards, and as my latest writing says, the sacred stewards of our planet. And it's really up to us folks to step forward and uh, take the lead, the initiative and the lead in making this our world and uh, those people that need help who happen to often, unfortunately, be in office making uh, categorical decisions about the lives of the rest of us, both in government and in business and elsewhere, uh, need to be brought to places of healing, be they spas, resorts, sanitariums, psychiatric institutions in some cases, uh, help ease them out of positions of power until or unless they actually are qualify for being in such positions. That's on the higher level, so to speak, higher, and uh, socioeconomically higher. But as Sally was saying, you know, the need for, the perceived need of, of smoking meat to pay for books or fees or food for a family in the Congo. Uh, This is a grassroots um, kind of demolition that has been taking place. The the theft of uh, tusks, ivory tusks from elephants that are so seriously jeopardizing the elephant population. And there has been on BBC a wonderful uh, series that speaks about uh, wildlife conservation around the world and the efforts that are being made by, let's call them, more civilized groups seeking to stop this kind of theft and this kind of murder. And it really is that. And there is a way for us all to work together for us not to have to smoke meat or or kill elephants to remove their tusks in order to make money to pay for whatever. There's a different way. There's a different paradigm. And we're really growing into it. Evolutionary biology shows that we are growing into it. And it's really up to us in using our mind with our heart in conjunction to take 
the necessary steps to advance our society and to take responsibility for so doing. Because it's up to us. Our species and all species are actually in jeopardy. They've never been in such jeopardy before that we know of between the fifth and what is now being called the sixth possible extinction. All scientific evidence shows that we are heading just down that uh, alleyway, in that direction. That's what the evidence shows between what we have done to the planet with global warming and now climate change, the disruption of a series of ecosystems over the course of a few hundred years. This didn't start yesterday. And the absolute disregard for consequences or what the native peoples would refer to as the principle of seven generations down, that we look down across the generations to what kind of earth, what kind of society and community will our children and their children's children inherit. That's the kind of consciousness, sense of responsibility, and wisdom we really just need to get hold of ahora, now, without hesitation. And uh, this show, today's show, but every show, is, even though we play and we laugh and we get educated about lots of things, is really the underlying point and the overarching one, as you who have been listening for years now really know. That's what we're up to. Education and inspiration to action. On that note, I want to just thank you all deeply for listening and do spread the word. That's the way we grow. We also have our own A Better World Promotions organization. We do promotions for fees, of course, to help remain sustainable, if not profitable, so we too can make donations to those organizations like the two we had on today uh, and help them be sustainable as well. It's a wise use, a compassionate use of capitalism. It, it ain't bad. Our use of it is sometimes god-awful, but that is within our domain to change. So on that note, sign up for a newsletter if you don't get it just yet at www.abetterworld.tv. Join the throngs who are so doing, and we too receive donations of uh, a latte a month, be it three or four or five dollars a month is fine for us as well. As long as thousands do it, it will work out just beautifully. So anyway, spread the word, not just about that, God knows, but about the work we're doing here in A Better World and what we're seeking to promote, the values, the humane values, the ecological values, the spiritual values, the sense of integrity. That's what we're going for. And bringing awareness to so many subjects that need attention, that need awareness, that need to be spoken of so we can, in fact, together create a better world. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin. Again, thank you, and I look forward to seeing you all 
next week.